Constructive Voices, the podcast for the construction people with news, views and expert interviews. Hello, I'm Steve Randall and welcome to Constructive Voices. This time we're talking to Stephen Lorimer. He's an expert on urban innovation, sustainability and clean energy cities. In the future, the cheapest times of actually heating that home might be at 1 or 2 p.m may not be at 5 p.m. Actually, it definitely isn't at 5 p.m. even now. How do we actually automate that process of preheating the home so you still feel comfortable at 18, 19, 20 degrees? So we'll hear more from Stephen Lorimer shortly. And Peter Finn, Pete the Builder, joins me in just a moment. Constructive Voices media partner in Ireland and the United Kingdom is Construction Industry News. Since 2002, Construction Industry News has been focused on the very latest projects and developments within the UK and Ireland. So, Pete, how are you doing? How's things? Good, Steve. Good. How are you keeping? Yeah, very well, thanks. Uh, we're not going to dwell on it, but I hear there's uh, there's been a birthday recently. <laughs> so I know you don't want to. I know you don't want to mention it too much, but <laughs> yeah, putting it out there. We'll be having some birthday cake at my house today. Yeah, it's my it is my birthday. I'm moving on in the years, but I, I I always like to think another year on, another year of experience, and another another wealth of knowledge that I've got this year, and hopefully the same again next year. That's what it is. It's extra experience. It's not aging. That's that's a good way of looking at it. Um, we're talking about somebody today who's got a lot of experience. A fantastic guest, Stephen Lorimer, and he is an expert in urban innovation and sustainable cities. And this is really building on the conversation we've been. Been, uh, talking about certainly this year so far. This is uh, fascinating stuff that he's done on a global basis. Clean energy cities is his main uh, focus at this moment in time. But before he got to that point, he he certainly was a man who committed his life in, in such a way that he he travelled, he got educated, he worked hands on, and um, very very impressive uh, resume of uh, both education and on site construction knowledge as well. His main aspect that he's doing at the moment is, is as I said, there, clean energy cities. It's a really, really interesting uh, topic. It gives a good, very good insight into how, again, decisions are made at, at higher levels. This is not something that, that, is, that is just, you know, given a few minutes thought and, and, and quick decisions are made. So much so, like, it's, it's done on a global basis. They've, like, looked at so many cities across the world. But what they've done is they've, they've separate, separated out the different types of cities into a different a typology and the different types that they've come up with is connected cities, free market cities, scalable cities, distributed cities and available cities. They can then use the typology of, of the city to to basically come up with the best solutions uh, when it comes to having a clean energy city or, or a city that is, is certainly going in the right direction in terms of environmentally friendly and how it uses energy and all of those positive things that we speak about um, so often here on constructive voices you know so it's a super interview and um it's something that i really enjoyed myself and, and i'm really looking forward to hearing it again absolutely well let's, let's get straight into it he's been speaking to jackie de Berker, and then we'll come back and talk more pete hi i'm stephen lorimer and i'm the lead for the clean energy cities program inside center for net zero which is an impact driven research lab uh, which is owned by Octopus Energy, a energy supplier in nine countries around the world, uh, and also amongst other things like managing uh, investments into renewable energy, leasing electric vehicles, uh, and other lines, of, other lines of, of business. But yeah, at, at a base, you know, a, a retail energy supplier. 
Fantastic. Now, we did meet up with Philip Steele last year in Footprint Plus of Octopus Energy and uh, had a really interesting six or seven minute chat with him. He's an amazing title, by the way. His title within the company is called Technology Evangelist. I remember this. It's amazing. <laughs> amazing. It is. If you were to give me a quick elevator pitch about the work you're currently doing with mm. the Center for Net Zero, how would yeah. that be? Center for Net Zero is promoting research. Yeah, that uh, that really shows how the energy transition is going to look like in the future. And Clean Energy Cities is a program within that that focuses on cities are going to be leading the energy transition because as we decarbonize our uh, energy built environment, housing uh, and uh, and transport, it'll be decentralized. Uh, the energy system from the big centralized system of grids that we had before into ones where it really is driven by lots of smaller local actions. And we'll talk about through what, what those are. And it'd be really driven by digitalization and technology and the sharing of data uh, to, to manage that. So we'll get into all, all, all of that. That's basically why cities will be in the lead kind of almost unexpectedly for them in a way. And, uh, sure. and, we, can, and we can talk around the capacity of cities to actually do something uh, and and be that and be those leaders, because that's been a topic of many different panels and different discussions I've been on uh, with cities over the last few months. Sure. Okay. And one term comes to mind, Stephen, now that you've, you've touched on that, is the term smart cities. For somebody like yourself, you're going to be absolutely fluent in exactly what that means. But I know sometimes online I've noticed that there is some confusion. Can you clarify the term, please? Smart cities is the use and data technology to improve the life of a city. I mean, that's I mean, it's basically what it, what it is. Now, you can you can split it into all different sectors, how the use kind of enhances the, the transport sector, the energy sector, the housing sector, but on its base. It's simply kind of the use of use and data technology to make living, working, and playing in a city better for everyone. That's all it is. Perfect. Okay. Now, <laughs> on the Center for Net Zero website, it states, our access to Octopus Energy's data set gives a unique insight into human behaviors. We use these insights, field trials, experimentation, and models to design a people-centered future energy system. Now, it's a fascinating statement. Can you expand on that, please, Stephen? Well, first on the people-centered energy system. You know, this means that as consumers of electricity, whether we are the you know, person who occupies a home or whether the, we're the people that uh, work in an office building are part of a kind of larger business community or in, or, or in public buildings, the changes in the energy system are often changed by the way that we demand energy. That'll be so different than the way that we do it now. At the moment, the way that energy comes to us is largely, and I'm speaking as somebody who's sitting in Western Europe at the moment, so I'm speaking with that kind of perspective, is taken to us with gas pipelines with gas that can be kind of turn, turned on, on on demand to heat our homes for tankers into petrol stations to be able to, for our, our, our cars to just fire, uh, to be able to be fueled, uh, fueled at will. When we electrify those things, we will 
the way that we use energy will be much different than before. First of all, renewable energy is going to be the cheapest way of providing that energy to us. And we know that it's variable. And that means that we need to be able to essentially get people to use that electricity when it's available, like get, you know, get all that charging into the cars, get those homes heated up at that time when that energy is available and really kind of ease off that demands from uh, from people, whether we use it through prices or we use it through motivation around greenhouse gases, we're agnostic about that. Uh, uh, but that, that those that's the basic concept of our energy system is going to be really driven by renewable energy. Use it when it's there. Uh, don't get into the situation we're in now, where we're paying people that own wind farms in Scotland to turn off the wind farms simply because they're you know they they can't uh, the electrons don't have nowhere to go uh, uh, during uh, during during windy times. We need to be able to to really use it when, when it's happening. And you know, for example. Yeah, electric vehicle batteries are an amazing way of of doing of doing that as one example because they could power a typical home for a week. On the other hand, it's like turning on a thousand light bulbs at once. So, so the, these are the kinds of changes in the end uh, the energy transition. And we talk, when we say these technical words like distributed energy assets, it, it simply is like we will be ourselves as homeowners or tenants really kind of using or owning a lot of the parts of the energy system that we wouldn't before once we have our hands on uh, photovoltaics on buildings even the heat pumps that will replace boilers within homes and and of course like the storage to be able to kind of have that backup for uh, for times when yeah the the day is cloudy. It's cold. There's a lot of demand in the system, but that kind of that kind of consumer demand change is it, it, it is really led by the way that people use use energy. Uh, that saves them money and saves the planet at the same time. That is kind of that is the pioneering research that we want to uh, focus on. And there's some field trials because you said before, kind of say about the field trials that that we've done before. Uh, there's uh, one called HeatFlex, for instance, that we're doing with Nesta, where we're asking people, tell us about how tolerant you are of the temperature in your home in, in the evening. And we will actually kind of, in the future, the cheapest times of actually heating that home might be at 1 or 2 p.m. may not be at 5 p.m. Actually, it definitely isn't at 5 p.m. even now. Uh, the wholesale <laughs> price is like eight times what it is uh, what it is during the rest of the day at 5 p.m. How do we actually uh, uh, automate that process of preheating the home so you still feel comfortable at 18 19 20 degrees so it's we're not asking people to kind of cut their comfort we're asking them to uh change change the way that they they use energy from this kind of just on on demand kind of way of doing it uh, at the moment to it's still on demand but it's Done in, a, done in a different way, in an environmentally sustainable way, in a cheaper way for them. And that's something that will be driven by the electrification of our built environments and our transport networks. Uh, and that's really kind of, those are the types of things that are at the, the center of Center for Net Zero to kind of use that tautology uh, mm-hmm. in, in, in there. And, and why when I work with cities, it's how you aggregate and combine the power of all of these individual actions up together 
and how cities promote this kind of consumer engagement as one of the pillars of clean energy cities, along with the changing of their urban structure and the changing of the investment climate uh, that, that we focus on within clean energy cities and, and the, kind of the, the recommendations that we make for cities. Right. Okay. Now, I've I've had the experience of getting solar and actually because I am, you know, very much into nature and the environment, feeling really excited. So I, I hope that a lot of people as, as we go through the transition will feel, you know, will feel a similar feeling, that excitement of knowing that you're using clean energy and exactly what we've spoken about, Stephen, managing it. Now, what strikes me about yourself is you have a very interesting background. I'm, I'm always curious about people. I mean, all of this is really, all of this transition is about people, places, and the planet, obviously. And what somebody will bring to the work in this massively important time in history and what their own background is. And in your particular case, you've studied history, which actually I also studied, philosophy, architecture, and urban studies. And some of the, some of the times that you were studying, you were over in the U.S., do you feel that, that 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 kind of combination of both the traveling and the blend of studies, do you feel that they bring something special to what you're doing now, Stephen? It's special because uh, when we work with the energy system and people, you really kind of have to have that kind of engineering and social science crossover that happens all the time. You know, it's understanding the the effect on people and those kind of qualitative kind of research to- uh, topics of how uh, people's perception, feeling, motivations are in being part of the energy system, and and even all the all the different parts that actually kind of want to change as well. Uh, how do we know? how well the engineers that are running the district networks really want to change the way they do things uh, rather than just keep reinforcing the grid and charging everyone for it like a big regressive taxation that's on there. How do the politicians feel about uh, dealing with such a technical topic that they never had to interact with before? Uh, And being in different countries has kind of... uh, opened up my own perspective. And I'm speaking to somebody who has not spent time in the global South. So those who are screaming in the background, you haven't done work in the emerging markets. Yes, I've, I've not. But between kind of the places I've lived and experienced, you kind of get this understanding of how people in different markets will react to that, that, that offer. And that helps you kind of understand a little bit what happens in emerging markets as well. So, for example, uh, in Johannesburg, one of the case studies that we built out uh, studied how a thousand megawatts. Don't worry about the uh, the the uh, kind of the the, num- the numbers there, but the kind of the, it's the scale that matters. A thousand megawatt coal power plant has been taken down, and 500 million of funding from the World Bank has been redirected towards only 250 megawatts of renewable energy and solar and wind uh, that was in there. And the reason why that kind of uh, scale could be done is that people in those areas are used to being flexible because their electricity has been cut off all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. and, 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 but how do we actually learn from those kinds of, uh, of, of lessons where we don't have to cut people's electricity off um, uh, to uh, to uh, to actually get that kind of flexibility built into uh, built into people's use of, use of energy in the future inside of, inside of cities and get that kind of behavior change 
uh, sure. that happens. And 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 I, I suppose while well, speaking to yourself, who's 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 Irish, um, I started my career in Ireland. Spent two years as an urban designer uh, in in Ireland because where where were I, you, Stephen? Because I did have a good look at your LinkedIn profile. Yeah, <laughs> but I don't remember seeing that at all. Where where whereabouts were you? I was. Uh, oh, this is. Uh, I'm going to use an Americanism now. It's just uh, this is very inside baseball. Uh, but uh, <laughs> the, but I was uh, above the Carphone warehouse in the middle of Grafton Street in an office there uh, by a, in a company called Urban Initiatives, which is a London-based company. And wow. I had gone to architecture school in Paris and decided that I was moving back to Europe somewhere somehow. Mm-hmm. And I needed a work permit. And where was the one place that was giving it out for giving work permits to people who wanted worked in urban planning construction? Ireland was because there was a housing boom, the Celtic Tiger, all that kind of stuff uh, that was happening 22 years ago. Wow! And, and I didn't know anyone there. And I arrived and was walking down Grafton Street and saw the nameplate, and I said, "It says Urban Initiatives." It's the kind of thing I want to do. I want to be an urbanist. And I rang the doorbell and they said, well, uh, sure, come up. And they had just hired two local associates in Dublin. And and uh, and I had said, are you looking for somebody to draw the plans, answer the phone, run the computers, manage the data, anything? And they said, maybe. The mm-hmm. managing director will be here from Lon- from London next week. And uh, and yeah, hands your CV. Do you have a letter? No. Like, do you want to write one? I just hand wrote one and gave it to them straight. Gave it to them there and then. And uh, and then I met the managing director the next uh, the next week, and it turned out that his father had been a boxer, a professional boxer in South Africa. So this man was six foot five and huge. And looking over a plan, and base, and uh, he looked behind him, uh, talked to me for five minutes, said, 90% sure, I think you have a job, and went back to <laughs> looking at the plan again. And I worked for him. His name is Kelvin Campbell uh, for eight years. What an amazing uh, and story. That, <laughs> and that's, and, that's uh, and after a couple of years in Ireland, they moved me to the UK. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's how I... That's how I got. That's how I got to London, uh, through wow. that route of Ireland, and a gigantic man from South Africa. That's an amazing. It's an amazing story. <laughs> and you know what? I'd love to start to talk to you about your time in Dublin, but unfortunately, <laughs> I, mean, I don't think you... that's what the listeners want to hear. But when I touched on your personal experience, Stephen, you also talked about uh, p- politicians and their reactions and the people themselves, and I think that you're you are also extremely well positioned to understand all that, particularly given that you did deliver the Mayor of London's uh, program going back a certain amount of years ago, direct investment for smart city technologies across public and private sector in London. Mm-hmm. I, well, I was the smart cities lead for the Greater London Authority, which is the the city, you know, the uh, that governs the city region of London and the 33 boroughs that are that are that are out there, and and for Bo- both Boris Johnson and Sadiq Khan <laughs> during during that time. So I wrote one for Boris Johnson, wrote another for Sadiq Khan. Mm-hmm. Um, I do remember uh, I wrote the foreword for the plan for Boris Johnson, and this is kind of my first interaction with uh, with pol- with politicians, uh, and I got 
it back from his private office saying, thank you for drafting the forward, but Boris Johnson does not speak like this. And uh, and so, <laughs> so okay. and so, I had to go go back and go back and kind of read read more about uh, some speeches he'd done or books he's written and and, and try again. Uh, but that was that was kind of a first kind of lesson in like you you are an official, but you really need to understand uh, the language and perspective of of, uh, of politicians and how they how how they view things uh, and. The way you know, one of the things that kind of I did did towards the end was establish the you know commission the business case for the London Office of Te- Technology and Innovation uh, because we found that uh, too often uh, the uh, the mayor of London would be seen as the person that would kind of own innovation in smart city technology or uh, digital public services, but the people delivering that. And kind of spending the forty million on the ground were the three thirty-three boroughs that actually were working with citizens, and they wanted to have more ownership of that process of of, of innovation. And so I was working uh, for kind of the the new chief digital officer, his name is Theo Blackwell, who's still there now uh, for the Greater London Authority, and 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 we set up a membership organization that all the different. Uh, um, Boroughs with London could sign up to to share expertise in how to uh, how to how to actually um, uh, commission these technologies without uh, together and actually have one voice to the to the market uh, for uh, platforms for consu- uh, for uh, for their uh, for their residents to uh, to interact with the housing system uh, with the, uh, with with other kind of services that they that they put forward uh, and and also for kind of the commissioning of sensor technologies, the, com- uh, the the commissioning of the commissioning of other digital public services that they want to wanted to put forward, and we got fourteen of the thirty three boroughs to be signed up after lots of communication across all three political parties, which are the the Labour, Conservative, and Liberal, Liberal Democrat parties, uh, and forms a two and a half million pound organization uh, out of out of scratch. By really communicating with the politicians that we want you to be the the, the, the owners of this mm-hmm. of this process of innovation in smart city technologies of digital public services, and it's something I take back to my work now in clean energy cities uh, to, uh, to be able to uh, say like we have recommendations for you as uh, as cities, but we realize that. There's some with the powers that you have now that you could do in the next couple of years. And we call those the 2025 recommendations that, that we have of what you can do with uh, for land development, uh, for the investment with the money that you have, for the voice that you have with consumers. But also in the next 15 years, you're going to have to try to use the powers of national governments, of taxation, use the powers of the finance sector, you know, for example, kind of harnessing harnessing pension funds and their kind of patient capital into uh, low carbon technologies and, re- and, and, uh, and renewable technologies through through cities and and, and, and also uh, try to harness the, the, the real estate market to really kind of put the types of land uses into cities which are complementary to each other, make a more resilient energy system uh, that is cheaper and fair for uh, for everyone. Uh, but we, you know, we knew when we went in and creating clean energy cities that there were these two speeds that uh, that politicians wanted to uh, wanted to fo- focus on. Uh, 
definitely is what they want to do now. But there is an election coming. We're always aware of that uh, to show those kind of results over the next the next year or two. Uh, but also you know, ones that ha that are able to put together that long term vision, saying of the, the next ten to fifteen years, uh, uh, what kind of city do we want to have? Because they're also selling that future when they're trying to get, get support from their residents and from their businesses uh, of, in, their, in their programs or, or being elected the next time. Uh, and, and also it's, it kind of helps them motivate the officials, and I was an official as well, that you know, are there for the long term. They will be seeing programs through that last beyond one, politi one political cycle. Uh, and of course, I was interacting a lot with the planning system, where that is exactly uh, what uh, what what a lot of them were do uh, were uh, were you know needed to needed to focus on, because the built environment uh, delivers slowly, and especially in a place like the UK, where mm -hmm. they uh, where where we have the oldest building stock in Europe, according to the Building Research Establishment, uh, or the BRE that they're, that they're called now, in a report they put out a couple of years ago. And they actually have the slowest replacement rates of, of buildings of any country in, in Europe as well. So this, in, and, uh, and on top of that, they, they have the least energy efficient buildings uh, because of these two, two reasons, which kind of goes to, goes to show. So the challenges are, are great here. Uh, and if of you course. overcome and if you overcome them here, you actually it's almost easier to take models that you built out in the UK and put them into other countries. And this actually has been uh, proven uh, by the fact that this is a huge center in London here for uh, engineering consultancy, real estate uh, in, in investment uh, that kind of has you know companies here. Uh, I can name them, you know, name them over and over again, from from Grimshaw to Savills to CBRE to uh, to Bureau Happold, et cetera, et cetera, that kind of mm -hmm. have that, that are centered here and really roll out across across Europe because uh, the most difficult problems uh, often often are here in the UK. But that's uh, but that's uh, that's something that's kind of interesting for those who been here like I have for the last 20 years sure sure but no it's, it's a it's in itself it's it's very true and it's a fascinating concept the most difficult problems can you know often with the right people involved bring some of the most imaginative and solid solutions you know yeah yeah so it's fantastic now obviously it's not we're not just concentrating on the UK because you and lots of other people have been involved in clean energy cities which is a research project working with mayors from all over the world, uh, from the likes of Amsterdam to Paris, but obviously going into the States and many different places. And you've been getting real-world data from all of these different places, which yeah. has been used to explore factors that are important to the local energy transitions, So, yeah. which might be obviously including the likes of low-carbon technologies, electricity systems, consumer flexibility, and so on. Do you want to talk in a bit more detail, Stephen, about this? globally clean energy cities is a framework of, of recommendations that we gave to five different typologies of cities globally across the world and we took data from 17 cities to form these uh, from the the open data about the structure of the city the number of people the kind of commercial floor space the number of households the density the open space available uh, within the city, uh, but also from their energy system, how much was decarbonized of uh, their electricity network so far? How much further do they have to go? Uh, how much of their heat and transport 
and well and and cooling because you remember like a lot of the, you're sitting here in in Western Europe um, and yourself are in, uh, and uh, and we don't think a lot about cooling but actually is a huge and growing uh, growing energy consumption over uh, in in many places around the world how much of that is uh, powered by power by electricity how much of it is powered by gas right now and and we started looking as well as uh, the kind of uh, the ability of consumers to interact with those uh, uh, with new lower carbon technologies. A lot of them will be digitalized. A lot of them be uh, you'll have a lot of dependence on automation from smart thermostats or EV charging to be able to have a fair and affordable energy system in the future. Are people used to using digital services? Are they really motivated by the climate transition? Uh, mm-hmm. Is the startup community something that actually is really strong in that in that in that area uh, to be able to, uh, uh, to to be able to deliver? So we took all these factors of the scale of the problem, of the you know the size of the city, the decarbonization of the electricity system. Where are they where are they where they ha- where they have to go? Uh, looking at uh, and the, the urban structure of the place, how mixed is the city? How much open space is there for installing more renewable technologies, for example, in 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 the city, and of course, like the consumer side of things as well. Uh, how do we, how engaged are those consumers going to be? And I mean, consumers who are both residents and who are and from businesses as well. And we took the, the this uh, this data and found that there were kind of five general types of types of cities around the world. Uh, we mm-hmm. call them the connected city, the free market city the scalable city, the distributed city, and the available city. And they, they range from kind of big global north cities, so, such, as, such as London or Paris or Tokyo that we took, took data from, which are, have huge populations and have a lot of people who are very used to using, very savvy with digital services. But there's mm-hmm. a large kind of digital divide that's very apparent in those places as well. Uh, uh, through to uh, through to for example kind of what we call a distributed city which is a, a place like Amsterdam or Medellin uh, that uh, in in Colombia so that kind of crosses both uh, both the global north and the global south and there's a high proportion of renewable energy that's locally generated nearby compared to demand that's there and but also uh, there's a, a higher take up of EV, you know electric vehicles and uh, it, and kind of the transport system is a bit more kind of decarbonized than 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 in other places. Uh, and, and then you have uh, you know places in the global south that we call scalable cities, where the the consumption in the future is going to be much higher than it than it is now. Uh, in a place like Johannesburg that I mentioned, men, mentioned sure. uh, for example, uh, mm-hmm. where, but but there are also typically places where renewable energy can be scaled at a huge level. Uh, at that, uh, because of the, the weather in, in these places, in these places is really advantageous, uh, in in a way that may not be in a place which is a little bit more cloudy, <laughs> such, such as London. But don't worry, we're, we're windy enough uh, over, over here as well. Mm-hmm. And we and we built out these recommendations for if you wanted to have a stable electricity grid with decarbonized heat uh, heat cooling and transport systems in cities where is powered by renewable energy and is low cost and not just driven by huge engineering investment into the electricity network, which turns into a, just a big regressive taxation for everyone. 
that that uh, that everyone has to that everyone has to pay for. And we had these recommendations that range from so, for example, from a place like London, uh, Tokyo, or Paris, a connected city, you might actually be really dependent on batteries, electric vehicles, and the most connected uh, places. You might have to reserve a lot of s- space for them to be an energy resource in places where you may not have have as much room for renewable energy on rooftops or in or in public spaces because those spaces aren't aren't really there and at the same time if you're actually commissioning those you're actually talking about small and many rather than kind of bigger and fewer uh, that are uh, that are uh, that are out there and 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 of course like you may also kind of on the consumer engagement side be thinking about what kind of information that we actually need to get to to our citizens, uh, to our citizens, but also uh, how do we actually harness in the future the taxation system to de-risk that investment by individual homeowners because they uh, they 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 typically will you know if you're a building owner you don't have the building for thirty years you have it for five years how do you actually how do you de-risk it enough so you're willing to make that investment and kind of and it's something that a liability you can sell on to the next person which is acceptable to them. You know, those are the kinds of questions that come out all the time if you're speaking to those who are dealing with the venture capital community, uh, those who are doing investments in the real estate industry in the built environment. Those are concerns that come up all the time. And there's a kind of potted history of programs uh, the, the one in the UK that we call the the, the green the, uh, the the new green deal, which failed because they were trying to build that kind of ability for people to invest into uh, into heat pumps or other kind of new new energy uh, new ways of, new ways of heating their home that they can sell on to the next person and it just didn't work out. Um, we know kind of big headline for kind of let's say take Germany for example. Uh, let's open up beyond beyond the UK. There was a report that was done by the German government that found that by 2045, about six billion euros would have to be invested uh, by the entire country, both public, private, both those sectors, uh, to achieve net zero by by uh, 2045. About six billion be be invested. How much would the country save? Six billion. By 2045, by by doing that. Now, the people that are doing the uh, that are doing the spending and the people who are doing the saving, how do how do you make sure that those are the same people? You can't guarantee it. So there is always kind of that that question all the time. You know, are the people who have uh, control of that property uh, in a city making that investment? Are they are are they able to recoup that investment? Is it are those benefits of lower energy costs or or, uh, or better services just going towards the tenants and not able to go back to the owners that made that investment? Those are all those are all questions that come out in the really big picture uh, of investment in cities, and that you know, and a lot of and, and uh, those questions are. Uh, very central to how politicians, how property owners, how people who are using using energy are viewing the energy system, and bring that all together really happens within cities. Yes, it's, it's super complex, obviously, Stephen. Yeah. So going going back to the five different city types, would you like to highlight each type, explaining you know succinctly what 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 it's all about, and give us an example of one city that pertains to that type? Sure, I'd be very willing to do that. So um, I think I said before, the connected city 
uh, that, that we have is kind of an example of a big global north city uh, that you typically find in, in London, Paris, Tokyo are examples, examples of that. And they, they are places which have huge challenge and very complex uh, uh, deal with it. So often the effect sizes, if we can use that scientific term, of taking an action within those cities is really hard to uh, to, uh, to discern. Uh, and so you have, to, you have to deal with that with the scale of the problem that's there. You also find that there's a huge amount of uh, commercial floor space. So the challenge, it really kind of centers a lot on the, uh, the commercial real estate market uh, to be able to deliver decarbonization of those in those cities. So there's that relationship is really important as well. It's by, by, by far the big, one of the biggest factors that's, that's in there. But we also know that investment is there and waiting to be used. So the financing of of, of low carbon technology of installing heat pumps, of installing uh, photovoltaics onto commercial rooftop spaces, of of, of putting it, uh, putting in putting in storage inside those areas, that financing is kind of sitting there and waiting to be used if the right kind of uh, case is made. And cases often made by new ventures that are uh, in the built environment that can be that uh, that can be done. I was just being being told uh, today about a new venture called uh, Bankers Without Borders, which essentially essentially is a kind of neighborhood sustainable uh, investment model as a as a service to be able to get those kinds of assets uh, within neighborhoods, and those are really kind of typically found within uh, with within connected cities, uh, and 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 of course one example that we have here is 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 in is in London uh, yeah. to to do that. So those those are the factors that make it make it different uh, from from other types of places. Uh, the second one is a free market city. So this is a place where the governments there are kind of not as interventionist and will be more dependent on the private sector to be uh, to be lead- leaders in it. So they will really center on market reform, on uh, consumers having the choice in things like dynamic tariffs. Uh, one example is in, in Singapore, where they kind of require all the different energy companies to have a dynamic tariff, which mm-hmm. means that it reflects the wholesale rates of, of energy. The wholesale rates of energy, typically in a Western country or a place like Singapore, uh, will be between four and eight times uh, in the evening than it is uh, in at one in the morning, two in the morning, or even even around noon. And the reason for that is uh, that is uh, when uh, demand far exceeds the ability of renewable energy to generate. Uh, because renewable energy is the cheapest way of of, of making electricity, uh, and so they are dependent on those kinds of prices to uh, encourage use at the times when it's cheaper, and using using a bit less or kind of or kind of shifting it away from the times where it's where it's more expensive. Uh, they're also typified by having being very mixed in their land uses. And this is advantageous to uh, building a clean energy city because the urban planner in me says there's something in the resilience of having uh, commercial buildings and residential buildings that are that are near each other, mm-hmm. because commercial buildings will typically use more energy during the daytime. Residential buildings will typically use them in first thing in the morning or later later in the afternoon and in, 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 or, and into the evening, uh, and when you're putting in local generation and storage into that area to actually get generation very close to when it's being where it's being used, 
that kind of mix makes it much more of a viable uh, viable proposition uh, to make uh, to the building owners, to the market and cities in general. So that's why we see it as a free market city because of those uh, because of those factors of kind of the market kind of leading for both the consumer engagement side and the, like the real estate sector. Mm-hmm. Uh, as well, and so the scalable city is an example is Buenos Aires or Nairobi, are places where there's a lot of potential for renewable energy uh, to uh, to replace coal-fired power stations, more traditional ways of using energy because there's a lot of loans available from the World Bank. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of incentives for them to uh, to change the uh, to uh, to make that transition, uh, but at the same time, demand is going to be increasing really rapidly for. Uh, especially for cooling, uh, but also for heating in those places as well. So that's some kind of opportunity. And I gave the example before about the the the, uh, the change in Johannesburg that got made uh, very very recently. Uh, the distributed city is one which is typified by Stockholm as an example of it. Uh, for example, where there's a high degree of regional renewables, where you have hydro, for instance, biogas inside that city already in proportion to its demand, and have a lot of EV ownership that's uh, that's there as well. And, and then finally, the available city is is a place where there's a lot of land kind of in and around the city is available for experimentation, renewable energy generation. Uh, and there's a lot of available data because these are typically places like Valencia or Manchester or, or Nantes in Western Europe, where, uh, as I said before, with a connected city, you often can't see the effect of the action you take. In an available city, you can. Uh, there are often places where uh, the European Commission or other kind of funding bodies have been putting innovation money into these cities. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 that's and that's because you can see that effect size of making that action, uh, and so uh, and so I worked uh, on a couple of smart cities projects that are funded by uh, Horizon 2020, which is a European um, a, a commercial research and development uh, projects, and the. The, even though I was working for London, I could see, uh, for example, with uh, Bristol and the Replicate project, or uh, or Uppsala in Sweden, uh, with the um, Positive Energy Districts uh, project, they you know you could really start to see the effect on the local energy network in a place in, in these kinds of places, which are really, uh, which was really amazing to see. So you can often kind of see the, the, the technologies being proven at a district or city scale in those places first, before they start transferring to others, which is, which is really uh, interesting type of city. That's a brilliant explanation of all, all five types and great examples. On top of that, Stephen, we also have two UK based proof of concept projects which are also really, really interesting as examples. Oxford, first of all, which is a distributed city. Can you tell us a bit about that? We're being funded by uh, by Innovate UK, which is part of the the UK's research and innovation agency, which uh, which looks at what are the right kind of business models uh, for the future that we can uh, that that uh, that will fuel the economy, and uh, and we have a, a grant from the uh, the Urban Living Project from Innovate UK to focus on. How do we actually manage the the data of the energy transition with, at a city scale? Because in Oxford, they'll be going from 800 retrofits or rather kind of installations of insulation, PV on roofs, heat pumps inside of inside of buildings, mm-hmm. batteries and storage inside of buildings. All those actions be made. 
800 a year in a decade to 800 a day. And the speed at which these, these assets, as we call them, in the energy system are going to be put in really requires uh, knowledge to be shared really rapidly with the energy with the uh, electricity network because they can be a big blocker in putting these into into homes uh, they can start to say no for instance uh, there's been an example that's uh, that I can think of recently I think it was in in Leicester in England which is a similar type of city that uh, two streets of heat pumps for a social housing provider didn't get installed because the electricity network said that there was no capacity to put them in. And that was just a heat pump. It wasn't even putting in renewable energy or putting in photovoltaics in there. And really proving that the kind of behavior change that we need from, uh, from, from people that use our buildings to, for example, <laughs> like we said before, an example, maybe heating the home earlier when there's more renewable energy and less pressure on the grid, for instance, mm-hmm. and doing and doing a bit less in the evening where there's a lot, a lot more pressure on, on, on the system. That will actually give the networks enough confidence to say, let it rip, let it, mm. let, let it, let it be, let it be installed. And then instead of try to put the brakes on it and say, wait for us to have a huge engineering project to upgrade, the, upgrade the network. Uh, that's one example that's uh, that, that that we have for kind of that kind of sharing of data of what's going in, what are you know, uh, what is the was you know what is the wattage that's going in, going into all the different homes, uh, for instance, you know, based on the manufacturing kind of metadata that we that we have for for example, those are the types of things that we're working on with with Oxford, and uh, with with Birmingham, we're uh, we're focusing on how the different sectors the built environment and we call them technically in the energy world i learned this when i did a phd in and energy and buildings um coming out of urban design and doing a phd in energy buildings the residential sector is called the domestic sector and everything else is called the non-domestic sector okay uh, how do, <laughs> and how do these do sectors of the built environment support each other in the energy transition one thing that we know is that people use energy differently that their behavior in the future of how they use all these different assets that i described before is going to depend on their lifestyle of their understanding of the technologies of their own flexibility of their in 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 their in their in their own lives whether they're kind of families where there's not much choice of what times you do things mm-hmm. uh, or uh, or or people like myself who don't who don't have one i have a lot of choice what's the difference between what the optimized vision that we have in the future of people perfectly using uh the generation on their homes and kind of the, the and and the storage that they have available to have like a perfectly even like demand of of electricity through the day that doesn't have these kinds of peaks, we know that doesn't exist. Uh, but when that when that happens, what are the opportunities for the non-domestic sector that is sitting next door to make up those differences between our optimized, idealized performance 
of those buildings and the actual performance. We talk all the time between kind of modeled and 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 actual performance of buildings in the built in, in the in, well, you, we, those in the construction sector. They know this extremely well, mm-hmm. and and. And and what the opportunities for investments into storage, uh, investments into their their own renewable energy uh, resources that could make money by uh, selling to uh, to the grid at times when it's very expensive because that's when people in the residential sector want to be using them. You know, potentially lowering the prices for everyone mm-hmm. uh, in the local area by doing that. So these are these are the things that we're working with the Alan Turing Institute, which is uh, a consortium of five different leading research universities. I think it's expanded to about eight, ten now uh, between UCL, Imperial, uh, Birmingham, the University of Birmingham, which is there on the ground, ground there, uh, Oxford and Cambridge together, uh, that focus on the use of, uh, of artificial intelligence and digital technologies to drive to to drive change in our society and our in our places. So I'm very kind of happy to be. Uh, working, working with, working with them. Uh, so those are a couple of proof of concepts that we've gotten started in the last couple of months, and it's really fast for us to almost go from late November releasing clean energy cities as as a framework or a way of thinking about how cities lead the energy transition into real projects working on the ground. And so we've been very lucky to, to really start to put it into practice uh, with our data analysts and data scientists, uh, with some of the best you know, minds around the world uh, and uh, from uh, from the University of Birmingham, from Oxford University and Oxford Brookes University, uh, over on the Oxford side, and of course with the with the city councils, uh, who are really motivated to deliver uh, on on their side. Hmm. We've we've said on so many episodes, Stephen, in various situations, you know, very varied situations, the collaboration, of course, is key to to all of this. And you know what, we're living in fascinating times, very challenging. But at the same kind of at the same time, kind of fascinating. Um, I noticed on LinkedIn that there's a peer learning cohort that uh, they're looking for participants to take part, obviously, in clean energy in cities at EV again, and also incorporating com- community voices, which I think will be super important as well. Do you know much about this? I, I know a lot about the the, the peer learning uh, so, uh, side of things. Uh, actually, uh, from the work I've been doing with the European Commission, uh, and so I've been uh, an assessor of funding applications for carbon neutral buildings and for circular um, circular materials uh, within buildings to uh, for the European Urban Initiative. Uh, which is the successor to the Urban Innovative Actions Program, uh, which was funded in the last uh, the, the last the last kind of seven year funding round of the uh, of the European Union, and and this has been really kind of is an award of about fifty million that'll be made in the next couple of weeks. You know, the, I think that will be announced to be made. I think we had our final meeting about three days ago in the middle of April, uh, 2023 of those who might be listening in the next year or so. Uh, that's, that's the, that's, that's when we're talking right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and, and what uh, the next few months are going to be doing, and I'm going to be sticking around as a as an advisor uh, to the commission with this program, is to build up uh, peer review uh, for where cities go and start to learn 
uh, kind of go and go and teach with each other. And there's a, a methodology that's been developed uh, by uh, the commission over the past few years of how to bring cities together to review each other's projects and have that learning uh, of like carbon neutral buildings of renewable energy projects. Uh, and so I'm looking forward to to that to the last few years. Uh, if if people want to look up some examples how that was done in the last big European Union funding round, uh, it was look up the herb act program herb the first three letters of urban and yeah. act, uh put together is herb act uh that if you look up the, that program you'll see some examples uh, of of that in the in the last uh, in the last funding round so it's it's uh it's a pleasure to kind of work with cities and how they've been been doing this in the past and when uh when i worked on the um the Sharing Cities project, which is uh, the Horizon 2020 project that London did with Lisbon and Milan, uh, mm-hmm. that was kind of quite central in the group of cities that we that we worked with of how, uh, for example, in street lighting or in smart heating solutions, uh, uh, the testing of apps, the testing of kind of a market in in uh, in in behavior change that we uh, that we built up that was done in London and Milan and Lisbon respectively how that kind of learning from each other would uh, what happens so we can go and replicate into into each other's cities like that's that's what a lot of funding uh, internationally is is focused on if you're thinking about that uh, with the European Commission or ASEAN smart cities which is uh, one of the case studies that I've built up for uh, with uh, Singapore and Jakarta, when I interviewed some of the officials from from there uh, over the last month or so, with a, a project that was funded by the Connected Places Catapults, mm-hmm. uh, th- those are th- you know, those are all good examples of how uh, how cities are really learning from each other because they don't have the capacity to uh, to kind of. Uh, to to do these projects, kind of starting from from the beginning, and oftentimes, and we and this is one of the reasons that we, we created the London Office of Technology Innovation in the first place. You get this kind of su- um, supplier capture, where you're so dependent on the, uh, the consultancies or the private sector uh, market to sell you a solution that they've also sold to somebody else and somebody else, uh, where. Uh, that almost kind of you're overpaying because you're starting again from the beginning when you, you don't have that capacity and knowledge and building up those networks and enables enable cities uh, to build that capacity and build that knowledge so they can be better procurers and be better buyers of, of sustainable technologies um, and and and, uh, and and cities really kind of can come to the uh, the fore of that and of course uh, I can I can wave around my Italian passport to the European Commission and pretend like I'm not I'm not British and not American, which is quite which is quite kind of fun, kind of fun <laughs> fun to do fun to do as well. Um. <laughs> oh dear. Okay, so he- heading back to the UK, Stephen, you yeah, wrote yeah. you wrote an article in March of 2023 that stated that the budget announcement could spell good news for local authorities and the en- energy transition. Do you want yeah. to expand on that a little bit? So what hap- what has happened in the UK is it's uh, one of the most centralized uh, countries in the world where uh, devolution has been slow of of mayors having power of their own budgets for 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 uh, 
are spending on their own cities and you're often dependent on national government to make decisions hmm. uh, to, uh, to do so. So, for example, uh, London has a combined budget between the 33 boroughs and the mayor of London of about 48 billion uh, pounds. New York City, similar size, similar number of people. They have a they have a budget which is over a hundred billion dollars. So the scale of the ability of uh, New York and their system, which is much more devolved to spend on change of their cities with using and, and making their own decisions, is much higher than a place like uh, like London. What the decision was made by uh, the national government is to have two test areas in which were Manchester and Birmingham where they're going to start with another billion uh, per year uh, to be uh, give, given to them. And actually, a lot of the powers are going to be around retrofits uh, coming in 2025. Of a lot of the funding that is, usually would come with, in the UK, is called the Homes and Communities Agency. Uh, that would be done for kind of retrofits of affordable housing, of the kind of, of the a building portfolio and street lighting portfolio that uh, that cities will have. So that kind of that kind of change is going to be really welcome. Where uh, the the local mayors, which are named Andy Burnham for Greater Manchester, and um, and Andy Street, which is uh, which is for uh, which is for the West Midlands, which includes includes Birmingham, are going to have that that power to make the decision what what works best for them. And we created clean energy cities because we know that those types of cities will have a different uh, different solution. But of course, we want them to learn from each other as well. We just talked about peer review. We actually kind of need to have uh, cities that have, you know, are included in the typology and know which other cities are similar enough to them that they can learn from each other. Uh, but uh, all cities will, will be unique and have their own solution. So that's that's why I wrote that, uh, that article. Finally, one of the things that, one of the pieces of evidence that drove that analysis was uh, something that was done by uh, the Prospering for uh, the Energy Revolution uh, program within UKR, which focused on uh, the local energy transition, which just finished about uh, finished about a couple months ago. And I was on a panel in Manchester discussing this. And the opening of that panel was done by PwC, who produced a report for them that said that if you were going to have a place-based energy transition, you can go from investing 200 million over the next decade on the energy transition to get 100 million uh, benefit from it to only spending 50 million and getting 100 million benefit as well. Hmm. Uh, and, and so this is the kind of uh, kind of change that, uh, that, 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 that uh, having a, you know, the focus on what is right for this kind of place instead of having something which is funded as a top-down centralized energy transition to something which is lo locally based. And that's something which is a really powerful piece of evidence uh, that was put together. That was something we we all kind of knew intuitive already, but for economists to actually come out and say, uh, you're actually kind of making money by having a place-based energy transition mm -hmm. for UK PLC to use that word instead of spending it is going to is is really powerful it's hugely important obviously now another event going back to dates which was yesterday because we're recording on the 20th of april 2023 yesterday you were speaking at the city's climate action summit in london yeah. and 
I'm curious, you've just obviously fresh out of that. What were your key takeaways? How did it all go? My key takeaways is that there's a lot of worry by cities. I was on uh, I was on a panel with uh, Barnsley and Bristol and Corby, which are three different you know, in three different areas of England, and there was a lot of focus on uh, relationships with the energy networks and connections of renewable energy. Uh, and and kind of for example solar or kind of the small amounts of onshore winds which is given permission in England right now and the weight of a decade maybe more into putting more local generation to the energy system and one of the takeaways was one of the things that we kind of said in clean energy cities all along that we're probably talking about more and fewer types of assets that go into the system of rooftop solar instead of solar farms uh, of batteries and heat pumps for individual buildings instead of uh, instead of big uh, big arrays of uh, of of heat pumps and uh, and and district networks and uh, and that's something which kind of came uh, clear from from that as well uh, that's uh, that uh, that local generation and storage we've kind of we've been promoting within clean energy cities is something which they're now realizing that they have to do that investment across many different buildings at scale rather than try to get that scale from individual projects which are understandably understandably easier to manage than than trying to deal with the the building stock in front of them uh, but i think they're the pennies dropping that that is the way that uh, they're going to have to manage uh, local generation and storage going forward. Okay. Now, one topic that's been sort of front and centre a lot recently in Constructive Voices is biodiversity. And whilst I appreciate it's not necessarily your main topic, how do you see, Stephen, that that fits within the vision and scope of the Centre for Net Zero? It's a signal that if a place is biodiverse, I mean, you bring me back my urban design days. Here we go. Uh, <laughs> and it's, a, it, it's a signal. It's a signal that a place is uh, is joined up and connected with each other. If you have biodiversity, because typically what you have in cities that are biodiverse is green corridors of uh, of opportunities for uh, for plants or wildlife to be able to kind of. Uh, make its way in and out to the in, in and out to the city, kind of using the everything from the back gardens to parklands to other, uh, other to other kind of assets through the city. And it's quite interesting here in London that we have the National Park City uh, concept, where um, I actually used to um, uh, used to sit next to the founder of that in a in a co working space a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And and he actually started to count up kind of what are all the different green spaces in a uh, in a in a city and found that you know in a, in a place like London you're talking about twenty twenty five percent of the land area of the city is if you count all the back gardens parklands etc is is that that's mm. there now on the now on the other on the other side side of things you can say there's so much road space so you have an equal amount of road space in a city which is blocking biodiversity uh from uh from happening as uh, happening as well so and and once you have the electrification of transport for example uh you'll start to get uh, a better quality of life in those green spaces more ability for uh for kind of 
wildlife or plants to be able to thrive in ways that uh, that they couldn't when you have petrol cars that are that are around and it'll start to encourage more investment into biodiversity as well and this are kind of borrowing some of the words from uh, greg clark who's the chair of the connected places catapult who who he said that you'll start to actually see those co-benefits uh, from making the energy transition and the example he was give, giving with uh, was was with electrification of transport. But you could make the same argument with the electrification of, of buildings uh, as well, where you don't have gas boilers that are uh, sitting sitting and kind of putting exhaust right next to right next to a building as well. That starts to give the opportunity for green spaces to thrive more more easily, and then people will start using them uh, using them more as well uh, and those benefits will will come for economic development on top of the biodiversity that uh, you get in the city and then you start to get cross financing where the people who want to see more biodiversity or kind of they, or they want to see just a better quality of life in the city start to fund the energy transition because they see the benefits coming coming to them so there's so there is a connectedness between all these different parts of parts of a city uh, that that's uh, uh, where the energy transition is not just seen as its own little sector to one to one side it's actually kind of one part where all the different sectors are connected are, are connected to each other and cross finance each other. Uh, that's something where uh, the in in the work that uh, that we do, we kind of definitely can can see that. Definitely one one comment that came up in a chat recently um, with one of our let's say contributors, a lady called Claire Wansbury from Atkins Global, was the concept of, you know, we don't need to defend and um, control nature. In fact, we would ideally want to be embracing it and harnessing it. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, the And the... Um, well, I mean, again, you bring back to my old kind of my my old urban design days. But there's a concept called the urban heat island that I'm sure that she went over in extensive detail, uh, and you reduce the need to cool buildings by having this kind of biodiversity uh, mm-hmm. through your streets and spaces. Yeah, of course. Uh, so, there's an amazing, amazing video from the 1970s from Stuttgart. They were the first pe- people to ever hire a climate scientist in their, as, a, 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 as a city official. Uh, and they actually were trying to uh, find out how they can build green corridors to bring kind of cooler winds cool, and uh, cool down the city because it's a city in a bowl, kind of like uh, like you hear about Los Angeles and to an extent London uh, that, was, that was overheating over time. They've started to extend it to uh, painting roofs white, to having uh, car parks, which are, have soil as the base instead of, instead of asphalt, all these different uh, parts of using nature-based solutions uh, to cities uh, really start to reduce the need for, need, need for energy consumption. Which yeah. is uh, which makes the energy transition easier to uh, uh, to accomplish, so, uh, and that's something which is really uh, really welcome. This is constructive voices. So, Pete, another great guest, uh, Stephen Lorimer, talking about clean energy cities and uh, that thing about the five different typologies, the connected free market, scalable, distributed and available cities. Really interesting to sort of get a perspective on where different cities around the world fit into that. You know, some are more developed in some areas. 
but lagging in others and vice versa. Really interesting stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So like a huge amount of research has gone into this and a huge amount of perspective in how cities live, the environments that they are in terms of, of climate, in terms of uh, location, in terms of so many different aspects that I suppose until until you actually hear Stephen say it, it, it all makes sense. But you, I suppose you can you can look past an awful lot of this, this information um, and sort of generalize an awful lot. And I think this this was an eye opener for me to perspective on you know the way people live and and the way a city functions as well and how that function can be adapted to become more sustainable and to to get to uh, what he he terms as a clean energy city so really really interesting stuff and and, and what a what a super listen that was another thing i loved about it was it like you know every aspect every 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 uh, corner of the globe was was discussed and um and I really liked the way that he, he broke, he, he got into how that information is, is correlated. Um, because I suppose we, we all think about, uh, I suppose when you, when you hear a conversation happening, you start making um, assumptions or you start making up your own mind on, on certain aspects of how people live. And then when you hear a conversation like what Stephen and, and Jackie just had, you can clearly see that, <laughs> there's so many perspectives and there's so many different ingredients that go into the, the melting pot um, to, to produce how a city functions and why it probably functions that way. And then the good thing obviously is, is how can uh, that information be utilized to, to improve um, how, how the city uh, performs in terms of, of, of its um, renewable energy and, 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 its, and its energy efficiency going forward. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff and obviously a big, big topic for the construction industry and wider society. And and what strikes me when I hear conversations like this is that we ask a hell of a lot of our cities. You know, we we put a lot of demands on them. We want it to be a place where lots of people can live, where they can get about easily, where there are things for them to do, where the business structure is in such a way that the economy will be great. But now we also want it to be done cleaner and more efficiently and that's that's a big ask and some of those cities that are hailed and a lot of cities make this claim to be the greatest city in the world but of course some of those older cities are the ones that are perhaps facing the biggest battles to modernize and to face up to the challenges ahead totally agree um you, you know there's an old saying that uh, the, the 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 truth is is usually somewhere in the middle between two people's perspectives and you know, I think the same can be said here. That like, what I really enjoyed about this interview was that you know every different detail was looked at. Look, I'm sure there was probably one or two small elements out there that weren't discussed, but you know they they really have tried to to look at how city functions and 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 how it it operates from every perspective. That's for me is is something that's so important. You know, I think you cannot generalize when it comes to how people live and and how how anything functions whether it's a whether it's a machine whether it's a human or whether it's a city you, you know you've got to look at the different aspects and you've got to, to, to look at the different on the ground realities that are happening in each area and then when you when you've done that you can actually make a decision uh, based on fact and based on you know r- real life actions and again I, I really do like when people take their time and and, and look at 
other people's perspectives and listen to other people's perspectives and don't go into the situation in a single-minded way. Um, the other thing I, I really we took out of this, which was great there at the end, uh, the peer learning cohort. Like, so that information is then being further discussed with other people who are doing something similar and the information is being shared. And um, again, you know, when, you, when, when we share this, this type of information and we, when we share learning and we, and we share understanding of what is working and what is not working in, in any subject, it's going to work. And, and as we are very aware and, and we, we really do champion this subject on, on constructive voices, this is obviously such a big subject within our industry and a big subject within, within our, our lives in general. It's really good to hear that we have um, some very solid people, you know, looking at stuff in the right way. I, I found it a very positive interview, if I'm honest, and I found I found that I, I got a lot of hope from it as well. So um, please, God, we can start seeing some of these results going in the right direction. And, and, and please, God, uh, future governments and future powers that be can can start to to see these these uh, um, entities and, and see see these figures that, that are being produced um, as, as being achievable and they can actually adapt themselves and adapt their cities and adapt the way that we live for the, for the better and do it in, in, a, in a manageable way. So, you know, we're not trying to generalize. We're not trying to come up with a, a, a one-fix-all solution. We're looking at something in the right way and, and we're, we're growing and, and working in the right direction. And again, as I said there, a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of positivity came out of this one for me, Steve. Yeah, well, I mean, what a great way to end this episode with a, a passionate call to action from you there for people to, to do what's needed to be done to ensure that our cities remain the heartbeat of our countries and our economies and our lives. As always, the conversation is building. We'll be talking more in future episodes about this topic. There'll be a lot more to come and a lot more perspectives. Pete, as always, great to talk to you. Cheers, mate. Thank you very much. I'm off now to have a slice of uh, birthday cake for myself, and uh, I look forward to talking to you soon, my man. Yeah, let's give the final word then, as you've mentioned the birthday again, to a uh, a character who, for copyright reasons, we're only allowed to refer to as Frog Puppet. Happy birthday! <laughs> oh, you're a man of many talents, Steve. Thanks very much. Chat soon. <laughs> and that's all for this episode of Constructive Voices. Please take a moment to share it with others who may find it interesting. Follow or subscribe to get the latest episodes automatically on your favourite podcast app and rate and review the podcast if you can. You can also listen to the latest episode by saying, Alexa, play Constructive Voices podcast. Here's Constructive Voices. Here's the latest episode. And on our website, where there's lots more information too. That's constructive-voices.com. Don't forget the dash. Until next time, thanks for listening. You're really helping us build something. Mm-hmm.